Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm Rachel Poser, and this week I spoke with reporter Micah Hauser about his article in our September issue on a husband and wife team of con artists who pretended to be lawyers and spent the last several years scamming undocumented immigrants in detention centers across the South. Micah's story centers on a mother of three from Guatemala who was scammed by the couple and then helped expose them. We're calling her by a pseudonym, Anna, to protect her identity. Here's our conversation. So Anna lived in a suburb of Guatemala City, which is the capital of Guatemala. And she lived in this um, really modest cement house, washed pink on the front, um, with her husband and their three sons. And it's a very suburban neighborhood. You can see the foothills of the Sierra Madres in the distance. And uh, she worked at home. She, she sewed curtains and rugs and made fabric covers for toilet lids like the kind you'd maybe see at your grandparents' house, that like plush carpety thing. When their kids were young, her husband, who was about 15 years older than her, they had actually met because he worked at her high school. He sort of changed and started accusing her of having affairs and over time became quite violent and abusive. Sometimes when they were driving, he would punch the gas and threaten to crash the car while their kids were in the back seat. Mm. He began to hit her sexually assault her. He would rape her. Uh, In one particularly gruesome incident, he slashed a knife across her chest and threatened to cut her heart out. Wow. So at this point, she's she's really in a bind. I mean, she she wants to be there for her kids. Um, She's actually from a very rural part of Guatemala, so she's really not close to the rest of her family, and they live far away, and so she feels very alone. Um, And she's obviously scared for her life at this point. So she marshals her courage and kicks her husband out of the house and gets a protective order, but it turns out he ignores it. He ignores it. Yeah, so um, he actually had some friends on the local police force. Um, Anna told me that since he worked at the school that was nearby, he would sometimes help kids falsify their diplomas so they could get into the training corps and meet the sort of minimum mm-hmm. academic requirements. And that personal connection aside, it's, it's well documented that police in Guatemala don't have the training or the capability or the interest in many cases uh, in protecting victims of domestic violence. Mm. There's a UN report that recently found that 36% of Guatemalan women who live with a male partner experience domestic abuse. And uh, women are murdered in Guatemala at one of the highest rates of any country on the planet. Hmm. So she's afraid for her life, and she doesn't have any confidence that the Guatemalan police can or even want to keep her safe. Right, right. So at this point, her mother, her few friends, and even her husband's mother all were telling her that she needed to leave the country and to get away from him. Um, So she decided to try to get to the U.S., She dropped her kids with relatives, you know, which was a really hard choice to make, but she figured it would be safer if she'd made it to America and then save some money and she could then send for them um, to come and meet her. So her plan was pretty simple. Um, She she decided to pose as a tourist traveling through Mexico. She packed light as if she was just going on sort of like a weekend vacation. She said she didn't bring a backpack because I guess that's associated with someone who's actually like a migrant moving through to the Mm. United States. She brought like a little rolly suitcase. Um, She got a haircut and a manicure and got on a bus for Mexico City. For the purposes of your article, we're mostly focused on what happens to Ana once she gets to the U.S., but it sounds like her journey through Mexico was harrowing. 
Yeah, her journey through Mexico was crazy. You know, in many ways, it's emblematic of the hardships the asylum seekers face as they make their way here. I don't think it was like a particularly egregious example. It was Mm -hmm. really par for the course. In Mexico City, she says she was extorted by police and had to pay a bribe. When she first tried to cross the border into the U.S., she was kidnapped by smugglers who locked her for weeks in a stash house in the desert. Um, This was somewhere in Arizona or New Mexico. She's not sure exactly Mm -hmm. where, but she described it as absolutely brutal. Everyone was crammed into a room, lying on the floor, barely eating. She really didn't know whether she was going to make it out alive, frankly. After about 10 days, the stash house gets raided by federal agents, U.S. federal agents. But Anna was so terrified that she'd be sent back to Guatemala that she lied and told them she was from Mexico, which is where she got deported. And I've spoken to some lawyers who say that's kind of a common thing. I mean, a lot of times you're so frightened in that situation that you just sort of say the thing that you think is going to result in you being moved the least amount of distance from your, your end goal. So she gets deported to Mexico, and she crosses the border again a few weeks later, and she was caught again, this time um, in southern Arizona near a town called Sasabes. And uh, this time she told the truth. Uh, She said she was running for her life and that her husband had tried to kill her multiple times and that the government was unable to protect her. So she gets arrested and put in an immigration detention facility, and she begins the process of claiming asylum. So after this long, hard journey, she's finally made it to the U.S. and is now sitting in detention in Louisiana, waiting for her asylum claim to be adjudicated. What is that process like, and at what point does she meet Jessica Alva? Um, So before I get into Jessica Alva, I think it's important to take a quick step back and emphasize how crucial it is to have a lawyer as a detainee Mm -hmm. facing deportation. Um, Intuitively, it makes sense, right? Immigrants don't always speak English. In fact, frequently they don't. They're unfamiliar with our legal system. They've had terrible experiences with government officials in their own countries, you know, which is often one of the reasons they're fleeing in the first place, because they're not being protected in their home country. So in these detention facilities, you've got that population with those sort of prior experiences. And then the bureaucratic machinery of the immigration detention system in the U.S. is so slow moving that it can be weeks, if not months, before you know what's going on. Or if you're claiming asylum, for example, for your credible fear interview, which is the very first step in the process um, to even be scheduled. So you need someone to help guide you through this incredibly confusing process. And the numbers bear this out. As a detainee, having a lawyer actually makes you 10 times more likely to win your case. But detainees and any immigrant facing deportation are not guaranteed attorneys. So the attitude is basically if you can find and afford one, great. And if not, good luck, you're on your own. So only 14% of detainees are able to find an attorney. And that also isn't that surprising if you think about it, because detention facilities are often so far from major cities that very few lawyers are able to pay visits. Mm -hmm. So Anna is understandably very excited when she overhears a group of women talking about abogada Jessica. Abogada means lawyer in Spanish. That's right. So Jessica is this lawyer who's supposed to be so good that some of the women call her La Famosa. Mm -hmm. They tell Anna that for a relatively small fee, a um, couple hundred, maybe a thousand bucks, that she can have you out of detention in under a month. And so all Anna has to do is write down her name and ID number on a slip of paper, and another detainee will pass it to Jessica. And then if Jessica agrees to take the case, she'll call Anna to meet with her on her next visit. 
And a couple of weeks later, that's exactly what happens. A guard comes into the dorm one evening and reads out the names of detainees who have legal appointments, and he calls on his name. Um, and she's thrilled. At this point, she's been detained for more than five months and has almost no idea what's going on with her case. One thing she told me that was pretty shocking is that none of the guards that she encountered at the facility spoke Spanish. Wow. And that's something I heard from the lawyers that I spoke to who had worked at this facility as well, that most of the staff for the facility come from rural central Louisiana where there isn't a large Spanish-speaking population. So there's almost no way for the guards to communicate. I mean, some of the ICE deportation officers speak Spanish, but much of the day-to-day existence you're being watched over by this group of people with whom you have no communication at all. So anyway, she hears her name and her number. She's taken to this small room in the facility. It's actually normally used for church services. She described it as like this multi-purpose room. Um, And there are rows of metal folding chairs separated by an aisle. And there's this woman standing at the front. And when Anna tells me about the time she first saw her, she says that it was like seeing a character in a telenovela. She's got on these nice clothes, these expensive-looking heels, carefully done-up makeup, thick black hair. And uh, Jessica proceeds to go around meeting with all the detainees one by one. And she sits down with Anna. Jessica tells Anna that her case is an easy one. And she asks Anna if um, Anna has a relative who can pay her to get started. And again, you know, when I, when I talked to Anna about this, she was like, you know, I'd been so nervous for so long about how I was going to get a lawyer, whether my case would proceed, and this woman comes. She described her as almost like this heavenly reward. So Anna does have a brother in Maryland, and she tells Jessica about the brother, and Jessica calls and convinces him to wire her $1,000 to begin the case. And then Anna never sees Jessica again. She just took the money. Yeah, so Jessica, uh, turns out, wasn't even actually a lawyer. What she was doing is generally called notario fraud. It's fraud that involves people misrepresenting their qualifications to do legal work on behalf of immigrants. They charge these outrageous fees for bogus services, they file paperwork incorrectly, don't show up for court hearings, that kind of thing. Jessica and her husband Eric worked as a team and Anna was actually one of their first victims. Over about five years, they met with hundreds of immigrants in detention centers across Louisiana and Texas, promised them legal services and collected payments from them, and then made off with the money. And they were making a lot of money. At one point, uh, they were handling something like $80,000 per month. Wow. But if they weren't lawyers, how were they even able to gain access to these detention facilities? Yeah, so it's a little complicated. Jessica and Eric would take jobs in the office of a real immigration attorney and pretend to visit the detention centers on their behalf. And some of these detention centers are in the middle of nowhere. Um, For example, LaSalle, which is where Anna was, is two and a half hours away from Baton Rouge and four hours from New Orleans. These are driving distances. Mm -hmm. And those are the two closest major cities. So this is like total middle of nowhere, small town, rural Louisiana. And lawyers often send employees, sort of colloquially called runners, to do interviews and intakes with their clients who are in these far-flung detention centers. So sometimes Jessica and Eric really were there on behalf of actual lawyers, but they also created fake versions of the permission forms and forged the signature of the attorney who was supposedly in charge. And other times the visitor logs show them straight up lying and just signing themselves in as supervising attorneys. Mm -hmm. 
So who were the Alvas? What did you find out about Jessica's background and how she ended up running this kind of scam? She and Eric got married when she was very young. Um, she was 18 years old. And she, her family is from Atascosa, Texas, this kind of small, very poor suburb uh, south of San Antonio. And her father was a Mexican immigrant who she says did come over to Texas as an undocumented person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- that was sort of the community that she came from. Uh, you know, I don't think that she, she or Eric had a particular demonstrated interest in immigration law. I mean, before they got into this work, Eric was Billings manager at a gastroenterology clinic and Jessica had worked at a marketing agency and was a stay-at-home mom and then worked as a caseworker for Medicaid claims. So they had sort of done these kind of administrative jobs and then got work in the law office of a man named Paul Esquivel, who was a pretty famous immigration attorney in Texas and had offices in multiple cities throughout the state. And that was kind of how they got interested in immigration law. And Eric actually told me, he was like, when we got that job, you know, I absorbed everything like a sponge. And I think that was kind of the genesis of their interest. And so how did they graduate from office work to running their own scam? A lawyer who worked at that office named Katie Garcia opened up her own practice and hired the Alvas to help her in a more substantive role where they actually were going to detention centers and interviewing clients, which they'd never done before. Mm -hmm. And how common is notario fraud? How many people are out there doing something similar to what Eric and Jessica were accused of doing? So the scale of this kind of fraud is huge. You've got an endlessly replenishing supply of victims who have almost no information about the legal system and are desperate for help of basically any kind. And the crime is also vastly underreported. The victims are almost always undocumented, so they have no incentive to go to the police or put themselves on the radar of the authorities. And in fact, especially in this day and age where immigration rhetoric is, there's this climate of fear that far exceeds even the height of the deportation machine in the Obama years. There's, in fact, insane disincentives to have any interaction at all with the police. So the idea that someone would approach a police officer or authority figure willingly to report a crime like this is, I think, pretty far-fetched. And so the perception in the immigrant community for this kind of thing is basically like, if this happens to you, you just have to suck it up and deal with it. There's one attorney I spoke with who runs a legal services clinic in the D.C. area who did a survey and found that 10% of all of the immigrants that this clinic worked with had been the victim of some sort of legal fraud. And there are 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. So even if we acknowledge that people who seek help from a legal services clinic are not a perfect survey population, that finding suggests that Potentially hundreds of thousands of immigrants have been victims of notario fraud, and we've barely heard of it. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. If you think about it from the scammer's perspective, this is kind of the perfect crime to commit. You've got this constituency that has very little information, often doesn't speak the language or have any familiarity with the system that you're helping them navigate. And they're the least likely person to report any weird behavior to the authorities because they're petrified of being deported. And then if the scam works and they are deported, 
they're out of the country and you're completely safe. Right. Back to Anna. How does she find out that she's been scammed? Anna finally has her credible fear interview, which is basically when an asylum officer asks questions to determine whether you have good reason to fear returning to your home country. It's a more in-depth test uh, where you run through the sort of litany of abuses and reasons you have for leaving, and then they make an assessment about whether you have a credible fear. And if you do, and the officer decides it's enough to move forward, then you get to plead your case before a judge who will ultimately decide whether or not to grant asylum. So at this point, Anna hasn't heard anything from Jessica in months. She's had the credible fear interview, and she knows that her court date is approaching. And she and her brother are both trying to get in touch with Jessica, but they can't get her to call them back. So the day before her court date is supposed to take place, it's around 6 p.m., and Anna is sitting in the dorm, and she is summoned to meet with a lawyer. She's expecting to see Jessica, but instead she finds a strange man she's never seen before who says his name is Jeffrey Garcia. And Jeffrey Garcia is one of the many lawyers that Jessica and Eric worked with over the years. And uh, Garcia, by all accounts, was not a very scrupulous lawyer or a very talented one. Jessica and Eric basically convinced him to let them use his name to do business, and he didn't really care what they were doing as long as he got his share of the money. And he basically tells Anna when he sees her that he had no idea she existed before that day. Mm. So basically, Jeffrey was there because he had been in court, and I actually read this in, in a deposition that was taken much later. He was there in court earlier in connection with some other clients of the Alvas, and the judge asked him about the upcoming court cases for the following day. Oh, wow. And that was how he found out about Anna and then went to the dorm that night to meet her and told her and two other immigrants uh, who were detained with her that he basically had never heard of them before. Right. So it was as much about covering his bases now that the judge he'd been kind of called out by the judge saying you have these clients you know are you going to be meeting with them as it is you know him coming to meet with her because he knows he needs to represent her that's exactly right in any event she she expects to go to court the next day and she's never called from the dorm to go to court and she later finds out that Garcia has withdrawn her application for asylum. And essentially, as far as the government is concerned, she's requested her own deportation. So instead of arguing her claim for asylum in front of the judge, he tells the government, this person wants to go back to her home country. She's asking to be deported. Yeah, that's right. So once Anna finds this out, she's, of course, petrified and enraged. And she starts trying to warn the other detainees about Jessica and she realizes that a lot of the detainees who had already left the facility, who everyone thought Jessica had helped out, had actually been deported. And so she sort of gets lucky in a sense because as this is happening, the Texas Attorney General's office is actually building a case against the Alvas. They had been tipped off by another lawyer who Jessica and Eric used to work for before Jeffrey Garcia, and the investigators were looking for people to testify against them. And so Anna was deposed as part of that case, and she's basically asked to serve as a potential witness if it does go to trial. And what ends up happening with that case? 
The case settles, and the Alvas pay a small fine, and they sign what's called an injunction that basically says, we promise that we won't engage in this behavior anymore. To me, that sounds like a pretty light sentence for what Jessica and Eric did, scamming hundreds of people out of hundreds of thousands of dollars, many of whom were deported to potentially dangerous or even deadly circumstances as a result. Yeah. The problem is there's not really a great way to go after notario fraudsters right now. A good legal mechanism doesn't really exist. Notario fraud is considered a type of small claims business fraud, like a mechanic who upcharges you on a repair. So the punishments are correspondingly light, and there's a lot of leniency given to first-time offenders like the Alvas. The difference, of course, is that when you get scammed on a car repair, you don't get deported as a result. Right. So a lot of immigration attorneys feel that the punishment, again, which is sort of meted out in this kind of consumer protection type way, is not commensurate with the crime. And so that's at the state level. And then at the federal level, it's really hard to get U.S. attorneys interested The reason being that the dollar amounts of notario fraud are often quite small on an individual level, anywhere from a few hundred to a few thousand bucks, although I should say that some people and some families do get taken for tens of thousands. There was Mm -hmm. one attorney who told me she knew a family that lost $60,000. Wow. The other sort of wrinkle in all this is with the zero tolerance policy, prosecutors are stretched really thin at the border. Zero tolerance, the policy that the Trump administration put in place and that calls for the criminal prosecution of anyone who enters the United States illegally, even if they've come to apply for asylum. Exactly, exactly. So in in the first month of that policy, in the five federal districts along the southwest border, illegal entry, which is the the crime that they're charging people for, accounted for 94 percent of all federal prosecutions in those five districts which means that other federal prosecutions, cases against drug traffickers, scammers, human smugglers, other types of violent crime, they just aren't being brought because the prosecutors don't have the resources. They're focused on this zero tolerance policy of nailing everyone that they can for illegal entry. So how do we fix this? Is there a consensus about how to address the problem of notario fraud? Yes and no. I mean, there is a consensus that we need better state-level enforcement, and there's a group of people who who believe that a federal statute that specifically addresses notario fraud would also help to grease the wheels for federal prosecutors to bring federal charges. But a further step would be to guarantee attorneys for immigrants facing deportation or Mm -hmm. at least for those who have established credible fear and asylum claims, like we do for defendants in criminal cases. The reason that notario fraud exists is because people don't have access to legitimate attorneys. If everyone could get a legitimate attorney and it was easy to do so, or at least possible in most cases to do so, there would just be less of a market for these, these scammers who prey on the desperation of people whose other options have been totally exhausted or who don't have other options. In not guaranteeing immigrants attorneys and instead leaving them essentially alone to navigate a system that's so opaque and unstable, there seems to be another more ambient harm being created here. There, these are people who came to the country looking for safety, for opportunity, and then their first encounter with the American legal system is to be scammed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really interesting, actually. There's a, there's a law professor and a sociologist at the University of Southern California named Emily Rio. 
she's interested in what the long-term effects could be when a group of people, and remember that ICE detains 400,000 people each year, when, when a group of people perceive the immigration system to be fundamentally unfair. Mm-hmm. There's this notion that she talks about of, of a civic penalty and it originally comes out of studies of the criminal justice system. And there's scholarship that shows that people who have a negative interaction with the criminal justice system, like they have an unfair encounter with cops or they're getting hassled by social services for no reason, they have these like negative effects for the rest of their life. They, they vote less, they participate in fewer community groups, they're less likely to join the military. And it makes sense, right, if your interactions with authority figures are all negative and you perceive them as agents of unfairness, then you're going to be disinclined to engage with them in the future. And uh, those types of negative interactions are happening at an absolutely massive scale in the immigration system. These experiences really matter, not just in the immediate sense, but these detainees not only have children and other family members, sometimes with U.S. citizenship, but also hundreds of thousands of them are deported across the globe every year with this impression of the U.S. legal system. Right. One of the things that I wanted to ask you was whether you had met Jessica or talked to her and what her understanding of what she was doing is. Did she and Eric admit guilt as part of the settlement? How did they talk about it? Yeah, I did meet Jessica And it took me a while to track them down. Um, I actually went to San Antonio to try to find them. And I went to the address that was listed on the court documents on the outskirts of San Antonio. Think sort of like chain link fences and dogs barking uh, and sort of like kind of trailer homes. And I was driving to my like rental Prius out there and this big truck pulls up beside me as I'm kind of trying to figure out where I am. And uh, I say, I'm, I'm looking for Jessica and Eric Alva. And there's this young man driving the car and he goes, yeah, Jessica, that's my Tia. So it was her, her nephew. N- her nephew. And I was I told him I was trying to get a note to Jessica and Eric and uh, gave the note to the nephew. And then I got a call from Jessica the next day. So you met up with her? Yeah, so I met up with her. That was actually on a subsequent trip. I went back because it took Uh us a while to sort of, I think, establish some trust with each other. But I I was honestly surprised by their willingness to meet with me. But she was in any event. And so I, I, we, we met at this Mexican restaurant on the south side of San Antonio. And she got there early and was sitting in this booth in the back when I arrived. She was actually on the phone with Eric, who at that point was in federal prison. So she sort of wrapped up her call and I sat down. So he was in prison, but she was not. Right. So the the judge in the federal case, when they were being sentenced, allowed them to do these staggered sentences of six months each uh, so that one of them would always be available to take care of their teenaged daughter. I see. Yeah. So Eric was serving and she was out. And, you know, she she was this incredibly charming woman. I was warned by a lot of the attorneys who I met who they used to work for that she would try to pretend like I was her best friend in the world and pull the wool over my eyes and make me think that she'd done nothing wrong. And, 
you know, they were really right. She was she was incredibly charming. She has this kind of magnetic energy. And, you know, it was interesting. There were times when she really clammed up and, and you know, kind of treated me like I was a prosecutor who was deposing her. And then other times when she would sort of let her guard down and try to compliment me and, you mm-hmm. know, what I thought was kind of trying to throw me off the trail. But... You know, she didn't really admit wrongdoing. I mean, as far as she got was she said that she and her husband hadn't handled the money right, that the money Mm. for a law office has to be held in the account of the lawyer, not of the legal assistance. But that that was kind of it. I mean, I asked her at one point how she would tell her daughter or how she has told her daughter, like, what she's about to go to jail for. And that's what she said her answer was, that she had sort of mishandled some money. And Mm -hmm. it was clear that at least her conception of it that she articulated to me, and I don't know whether this was like her own self-delusion or she was masking something, but it seems to me that she thought she had been sort of pinned for this sort of bureaucratic minor problem, but was not really willing to reckon with the actual consequences of what had happened. Mm -hmm. And... Is there a case to be made for her side of the story, or do the the facts in the case kind of speak for themselves? There's always a case to be made for for someone's side of the story. I mean, I think she would say of the specific charges, listen, this is such a desperate segment of the population that needs help of any kind that even a Mm non-lawyer is more helpful than nothing. Mm -hmm. And you know, in some respects that could be true, but in other respects she could make an error that would result in someone being deported to their death. Right. Or not even an error. It sounds like in many cases she actively volunteered people for deportation who were trying to claim asylum. Yeah. Jessica told me this when I met her too. She was like, you know, you can get rich being an an immigration lawyer. And Mm. I think, you know, that's sort of contrary to the notion of the kind of pro bono do-gooder immigration lawyer, which I think makes up a large percentage, but there are also these kind of sleazier private attorneys who are in it for the money. Um, And I think Jessica and Eric realized what they could make um, doing this type of quote work, unquote. And uh, they ended up spending pretty extravagantly. The state, as part of their initial case, seized a bunch of assets from the Alvas to both pay fines and also restitution to victims. And they had been purchasing really expensive luxury goods. Jessica had a passion for designer heels. And so she would buy these Louboutin pumps, Prada shoes and, you know, all the stuff was seized by the state and it ended up costing thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. They had bought floor seats to some Spurs games, a couple of cars, some jewelry. Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing crazy, but there's obviously a sort of odious implication that the money that they had stolen from these people is being used to buy these sort of frivolous luxury goods. Right. So this piece is very focused on the Alvas and the scam that they were running. Yeah. But... This is happening to hundreds of thousands of people potentially across the country in all sorts of ways, and not only to immigrants who end up in detention centers. So could you talk a little bit about kind of the broader forms of notario fraud that you've come across? Yeah, yeah. So there there are all sorts of different flavors um, of notario fraud. There are 
these sort of strip mall operations um, that prey on people who are already established in the community and aren't recent border crossers. So maybe they need a visa renewal or um, uh, they're trying to apply for a green card or something has happened with their work permit, any sort of administrative thing that comes up later in the experience of an immigrant who's living in the U.S., there's this possibility for someone to say that they're going to fast track the application for a fee. They're going to get you a special form that is going to, you know, the government will look upon more favorably. Any sort of lie under the sun has been tried. But the basic goal is for a fee, we're going to expedite the process or put you on some sort of special track that will get mm-hmm. you preferential treatment. So you see that happening a lot. Um, there's also some cases that I found in Texas recently where people had sent flyers to relatives of detainees at various detention centers and basically offered their services as a lawyer. And then it just turned out that they weren't a lawyer at all. And so that was just a matter, they didn't even go to the detention center, but they were preying on the fact that these family members were desperate and had people who were detained and were therefore willing to to pay. One thing that I remember from listening to your tape with Katie Garcia is just about the desperation of immigrants in detention. They want to be told, I can help you. They want to hear that. And she was talking about how very often, because immigration law, especially right now, is kind of stacked against many of these people, the responsible thing to do as an immigration attorney is to say, I'm sorry, you have a losing case, and not to say, yeah, I, I can get you out and just take the money when you know that there's nothing you can do to help the person. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So what happened to Anna after she cooperated in the case against the Alvas? Is she still in the country? Yes, she is still in the country. She spent the better part of three years in immigration detention uh, in Louisiana, and then eventually for her willingness to cooperate with the federal investigators who did end up bringing a case against the Alvas after the state case, they gave her what's called deferred action, which is basically like an agreement by the government to pause its effort to deport you. Mm -hmm. And it's like a wait and see kind of thing. And as part of that, she got a work permit and she was allowed to get a job. And so she went to Maryland to reunite with her brother and it expired after a year and she was hoping to renew it. But now that the case was over and the Alvas had pled guilty, the investigators stopped responding to her. And now, especially with Trump in office, where uh, the notion of priorities for removal has been eradicated, so any immigrant who's in the country illegally is a priority, she's really in danger of being picked up and deported at any time. And so she has a new pro bono attorney who is trying to get her a new asylum hearing, but her situation is pretty precarious. So take us through that. What's the basis of Anna's claim, and how has the legal environment changed since she arrived in the country now more than six years ago? So, so since 1980, U.S. law has outlined five categories for claiming asylum. You have to have a well-founded fear of persecution in your home country based on one of the following factors, race, religion, nationality, political views, or membership in a particular social group. 
Since 2014, there has been clear precedent that women like Anna, uh, married women from Central America who suffer life-threatening abuse and are unable to leave their relationship, do fit into that last category. Judges have said that they qualify as a member of a particular social group. But the Trump administration has walked back those protections and argued that victims of domestic and gang violence should not qualify for asylum protection. And Jeff Sessions recently issued this ruling that basically said, from now on, that's not how we're going to do things here. And victims of domestic and gang violence are not going to qualify as members of particular social groups. So it's much harder in these new circumstances for Anna to win her case, even if a judge did grant her motion to reopen it. So she's in this really tough situation where she's been navigating this legal mess for six years. She spent nearly three of those years in a detention center. She's out several thousand dollars. She agreed to cooperate with prosecutors to catch wanted criminals. And now she's basically been abandoned, and the legal climate is significantly worse than how it was when she started. She's still currently working uh, illegally, and she's working, believe it or not, in a detention center. And I'm not going to say exactly where for her own safety, but she's working at a detention center in a kitchen, which is where she worked when she herself was detained in Louisiana. And we've had lots of conversations on the phone while she's been cooking and cleaning and preparing Mm -hmm. for the detainees to come in and eat. And she always laughs. She has a great sense of humor and sort of this hardened sarcasm about the plight that she has, has suffered. But she kind of laughs and says that she feels like she's back in Louisiana and a lot of the cookware is exactly the same. And it probably is exactly the same, like made by the same company. Right. The ladles, the pots and pans, even the can opener are all the same as the ones that she used when she was detained. And she said that after all these years of being detained, she uh, has gotten used to the feeling of being locked up. And she says she guess maybe she just likes it. Hmm. Her first night out of detention, actually, uh, back when she was released from LaSalle, she, she said she was actually really disturbed by how quiet it was and how alone she felt in her brother's house. She had been used to sleeping in this dorm with anywhere from 30 to 80 people for so many years. And then all of a sudden she was in total silence in this state that she'd never been to. And, and now she has her own place, um, but she's alone a lot of the time and she tries not to spend too much of her time out in the open, she's terrified to drive because she doesn't have a license and she knows that if she got pulled over, she could be deported very rapidly. So she has a simple routine. She gets up, she goes to work, she comes home, she talks to her kids on WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. And How old are they now? They're now 13, 14, and 21. Mm-hmm. While I was reporting the story, the oldest was actually in the process of applying for a study abroad program that would bring him to New York for a few weeks this winter. And he just found out a couple of weeks ago that he got accepted to the program. Anna sent me this glowing message um, that she's so excited and plans to go visit him in New York. And it'll be the first time that she'll have seen any of her kids in over six years. Thanks, Micah. Great to have you on. The full version of Micah's story, The Deportation Racket, is in the September issue of Harper's Magazine and available online at harpers.org. 
This episode of the Harper's Podcast was produced and edited by Rachel Poser and Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Run by Febrifuge, all rights reserved.